to Leonte de la Rue, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Richard Colinan. Uh, Richard, uh, tell us a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in Western martial arts. Uh, well, I started, well, if we're talking martial arts, I started back in my um, 20s doing uh, freestyle Hapkido, which was kind of interesting because it's basically, it's a combination of jiu-jitsu and um, Taekwondo is the easiest way to explain it. It's one of those Korean arts. And then I kind of fell out of that um, because the master I was learning on actually upped and moved to Brisbane. And considering I live in Sydney and Brisbane's, you know, like half a continent away, <laughs> it hmm. makes it very, very hard. Um, so I'd gotten involved with... Um, a reenactment group and it was a bunch of people that were splitting between a serious reenactment group and the SCA so I was playing with both groups and we and had, this would have been back in the 90s or so yeah this was in the 90s okay. so in 98 we were really trying to get fencing off the ground in my local group because I was in the group that's about an hour out of Sydney and what ended up happening was uh, one of our members who worked at New South Wales University, her boss, we found out, was a fencing master. And cool. she convinced him to run fencing classes for people in the SCA who were trying to learn how to fence. And... Um, it had the advantage in that there was a college group there so they could get rooms for free and everything like that. And he said, oh, I'll give it a couple of weeks and see how it goes because he'd had <laughs> previous experiences with... Um, mm-hmm. He'd had previous experiences with the university fencing club. And as he said, they were more concerned about winning than doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then that's when Sounds we found familiar. out that yeah, and it was um, probably the greatest thing I ever started doing at that point because it turned out that Maestro Peter Lenich had trained at the top school in Rome under the top fencing masters in Italy. Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, so he trained at the Great. Academy of Greco That's in lovely. Rome. Yeah, um, and... What was really really interesting we found out later was because he was interested in fencing theory and theatrical fencing, he had so many old fencing masters come out of the woodwork to talk to him. Um. And they taught him a whole bunch of stuff. And then when we got into conversations and doing stuff and actually doing like the rapier stuff with the SCA, 
and putting the stuff in his hands and he started creaming us with it. We go, where the hell did you learn this? And he started explaining that the stuff he'd been taught by the old fencing masters is, oh, this looks good on the stage, was actually the living tradition of some of this really old Italian No fencing. kidding. So it survived in the, in the stage, stage play. I did not know that. Yes, yes. This is what we found out, is some of the old rapier, rapier and dagger, and a lot of this sort of stuff had survived, but it had survived through the theatrical side, not through the sports side. Mm, cool. So mm. let's get to the important part. When did you uh, decide that the Bolognese was the uh, the source <laughs> to go after? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I actually got into it really, really early. Um, I started under Peter in 98. Okay. And then it was around 2003 where translations of Moroso and Manchelino started hitting the internet. Um, wow, so it was okay. people like Bill Wilson and um, Craig Pitt Platty were starting to put these translations, their, their early translations mm. out. And I just started collecting them and collating them. So I'd been looking at it since 2003. Wow. Um, okay. And learning a little bit of Italian on the side, cross-checking what they were writing and what their translations were saying and stuff like that. And then it was really uh, basically, yeah, 2004, 2005, where I really started pulling something apart. I think that's when... That's when the first shift to concentrating on Manchelino started, because Manchelino has that section of, if they're in this guard, this is the attacks you can throw, these are the defences you have. Right. Yep. Because um, right. well, Delagotchi... I guess that kind of brings up the next question. Yeah. Uh, no, no, it's, it, but it was the... Delagotchi hadn't really hit that point, so you know we hadn't gotten into this habit of everybody yep. doing Bolognese going, oh, I'm going to learn how to win a duel in 30 days. And right. it was just the the match, and I'd actually not long started a new job at that point, so I was spending like an hour and a half each direction on public transport. So I was just like sitting there analyzing, reading, collating, and that was like my life from about two thousand and five onwards for the next couple of years. Cool. That's a good so, way yeah, to get no, it that's, all down. That's, that's, that's really when it started for Excellent. me. So of the five principal authors, whose work speaks to you the most now? And what do you think each of the principal authors brings to the table? Uh, Manchelino is my go-to. And it okay. has been for... It has been since 2006, to be honest. Okay. Um... The thing I like about Manchelino is he's very, very clear in his writing. Um, We have that section where he says, okay, these are the the offences you can throw, these are the defences you can use, that section is gold. But what's even actually more impressive is when you start looking at his assaulty, those assaulty get repeated with more detail. So those, some of those right. plays that he actually yep. puts in that first section get repeated in the assaulty. So you can actually use the two together to actually flesh out the footwork and the handwork for a lot of these actions. Um, right, and what your opponent is going to be, how your opponent is likely to react too. So then you're kind of 
one step ahead. Yeah, and then the second love is Morozo for the two-handed weapon stuff. Okay. The um, Sparta Duomani and the polar material particularly is really, really yeah. good. Uh, and Morozo also has a lot more detail when it comes to the dagger. So the sword and dagger, the dagger and cape, yeah. and the single dagger, that's just... This, there is golden stuff there that when you actually start looking at it in unison with what Manchalino writes, you end up with a very, very comprehensive fencing system. It's awesome. Yeah, I remember, I remember you had a pretty interesting point that the, like the buckler and the dagger are sort of the same thing because you kind of turn your hand the same way to make defenses with them. Yeah, that and that's... That's one of the things because for a really long time, and I think it's still pretty prevalent today, everyone says, oh, you've got to start with single sword. And when we look at the first two Bolognese manuals, they start with buckler, they start with sword and small buckler. Yep. So they're using two hands at once immediately. And what it really, what I, and that's what I started doing with my students back in, uh, oh god when I first actually started doing it with staccato was 2006 we started with the sword and buckler in then and the really really interesting thing that we actually discovered is the buckler becomes a focus tool to help people learn their correct cutting lines mm, yeah that makes sense uh, especially the small one the, yeah, particularly with the small one. And we're mm -hmm. talking only something that's like 9 inches, 20 centimetres round. Right. Because what actually happens is that lip of the buckler sits on your centre line. And because we have the instructions to cut to the lip of the buckler, they're automatically learning to cut through their centre line. Whereas right. students I've had that basically insisted, oh, they didn't want to use the buckler, they wanted to use the single sword on its own make these wider curving cuts that don't actually cut through their center line and they're wondering why they're getting hit all the time oh, and then we so done the remedial really work putting, yeah and then we yeah. put the we put the buckler in their hand do a bunch of remedial work and then all of a sudden things get really really tight because they're now cutting through their center line that's and interesting like, so that's maybe like oh yeah sorry go ahead yeah so i i really do think that the, the Bolognese authors, particularly Morozo Manchalino, are using this sword and small buckler as their pedagogical teaching system because of all of the advantage it gives. And it also means that if I put a dagger in someone's hand, they mostly know how to use it automatically. Right. Right, because I'll make the same parries with it. and It's not that different yeah. to go from that to a Rotella too. And to, a, to the cape, to a second sword. to right. So it actually becomes at this point where when you actually start looking at it, the whole, it's it's one system. It's not a collection of weapons. It's one system. And sort of there's little things like how you actually hold and use the dagger. If you feedback that into how you hold and use the buckler, it improves the buckler tremendously. So it's not just, oh, you do it this, and then you do this, and, then, and they're, they're, they're not separate systems in the same manual. It's all one system in the one manual. Interesting. So, 
Yeah, go ahead. So you'd say you see a common tactical approach to the Bolognese authors then, right? Oh, absolutely. So there's do you a, think this, okay. Is there a difference, you think, that you would highlight between Morozzo and Menchelino, for example? Um, tactically, Morozzo and Menchelino do operate very similarly. Um, Morozzo is a little bit more... Um, he likes to go to finer graduations. Okay. So he, he will separate... So like for Porta de Ferro, he'll separate between sort of Strata, Alta and Lager. Okay, in the Porta. So he, the, the different... He'll actually have graduations with that, whereas Manchelino is basically... It's either open or closed. It's either the, the Strata or the Lager. He doesn't differentiate between Porta de Ferro Strata, Porta de Ferro Alta the same way Morozo does. And we also see that... We also see, like, the Anonimo does this much more graduated look at the guards as well. Right. It's about as so, graduated as you could possibly make it. <laughs> yeah. So it's... And, and I think that's... That really is, I think, one of Manchelino's strengths is he actually just goes... We don't need to get down to this fine detail. It's either this, it's it's either the point up or the point down. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, that, it, yeah. Like his Guardia de Facha, it's like it doesn't matter if it's on the left or if it's on the right. It's just if it's high and it's pointing at them, it's Guardia de Facha. If it's not, then it's as long as it's sticking in their face. I really don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, right. You'll point the edge wherever it needs to go. We don't need to get all uptight about that. Yeah, cool. but uh, yeah, because it's. But the, and the interesting thing, too, is when you actually look at Morozo, Morozo is very specific about it. it's not actually palm up. It's actually that 45 degrees with the hand in third and uh, fourth and third. Right, right. And uh, because he says the thumb has to be on top. So it's it literally is that 45 degree line of the blade. And... It, we were playing around with it and going, why is he saying this? And then that's when we realised when we actually go palm up, it turns the hand just outside the buckler so it gets hit all the time. Oh. And you turn it on the 45 degrees and it just pops just behind the lip of the buckler so you can't hit it. Right. It, and it was like, to go flat, yeah. And it was just like, oh, man, these guys knew what they were doing. <laughs> yes, they did, man. Yes, they did. did you have something you were going to say, Joshua? The minutiae of detail. Yeah, um, yeah. I think one of the things that always stands out with me with Morazzo in particular, and I think the Anonimo speaks to this as well a little bit, is the uh, the counter guard focus too, where Morazzo or Manchiolino seems to be uh, same guard, um, and that's kind of the emphasis of his tactical system. Right, right. He wants to be in the same guard as the opponent, as opposed to Morazzo, like, does a counter to it. Right, yeah, so he has, like, positions where he'll try to put you in a position to sort of tactically exploit the angulation of your opponent's blade or so on. Cool. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, and it, that's kind of really interesting because from a pedagogical point of view, having people start in the same guards actually is really useful from a teaching purpose. So I can mm. see why Manchelino did it that way, and I end up teaching the same way because it helps students understand that they're concentrating on one particular guard um, and it's it's kind of like you've got Manchelino doing that, Morozo talking about the counter guards and then when you look at something like 
Anonimo, it's talking more about, you know, is the sword in presence or out of presence? Right. So, He'll do uh, all kinds of guard combinations. He, he's, yeah, he's trying but, to create the encyclopedia. Yeah, but really, really what he's talking about is he's really talking about is the sword in presence or not in presence? Right. If it's in presence, you do it this way. If it's not in presence, you do it that way. Right. And you're going to hit their it's sword. It's a little or bit hand. agnostic on what. It's a little bit agnostic on what actual guard they're in. Right. Right, because usually you try to create situations where it doesn't really matter what guard they're in. Yeah. So then you don't have to think. Right. Yeah. I mean, his 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 line in his introduction where he's like, you know, is their point online? Take it offline. Is right. it offline? Then bring put, it online so you can take it offline right. so you can strike <laughs> can them safely. Them. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of like his, his common pedagogical and, and tactical approach to, to fencing. It's simple and beautiful. So um, you've done a fair bit of research about the history of De Luca and Morozzo and some of the other key figures in the interest of uh, the Bolognese crowd. Can you speak to that here, uh, Richard? Tell us a little bit about your research methods. I think you, you're a scientist, right? Yeah, I'm a qualified industrial chemist, um, so okay. I work for uh, pharmaceutical and medical device companies doing QA compliance type work. Um, so yeah, so it was kind of that university background meant that it was the, if, so that concept of if you do this, this hat, that, that sort of action reaction type thing was <laughs> right. kind of natural <laughs> reaction right exactly <laughs> yeah it's just chemistry that's chemi- bro that, that's chemistry in a nutshell right <laughs> um, so that that kind of thinking fed down into it and it's you know just out of interest you start looking into this sort of stuff and there's um oh god i've gone blank on the name of the guy um there was a guy that wrote this compilation about all of Italian fencing history, and I've gone blank of his name. Oh, Gogler? No, not Gogler. It's pre-Gogler. It's a 19th century guy. Oh, shoot. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, um, made up a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I've gone completely <laughs> blank on his name. He was essentially the equivalent of uh, uh, Burton. You know, he's basically the Italian equivalent of Burton. And what he basically sort of found all this stuff and wrote all this stuff and there's this giant there was this giant um encyclopedia type um fencing history manual which was basically there'd be lines of all this stuff and it got collated and we were able to pick it up and read bits and pieces of it and it was someone actually translated it and published it in english so it actually had references to, you know, oh, there's copies of their manual here and here and here and here. Right. So I started right. digging into it. So like the DeLuca stuff, um, Bill Wilson started first pulling some of that stuff up. So that's where some okay. of the original material came from. And a couple of other start, people started pulling up the history. And then there was a reference in this... Italian guys from the 19th century of his manual. So I started doing the reaching out to the places it was because it was supposed to have been in the Italian National Library. Right. In one of their repositories. Uh, and they couldn't find it. They couldn't? Oh no. Why not? No, they couldn't find it as far as. So they had the references. So 
it may be a case of the you know because yeah what happened to libraries in 1940s <laughs> that's a bit of a rough time for italy not just Italy, yeah. lots of places in the world had a bad yeah. time that decade. Right. My, 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 most, most of Europe, the 1940s, there was a, there was a little bit of... Um, There's a distraction There was, there was going an incident, on. shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. yeah, and that's that's really was one of the big problems, was that stuff just goes missing. Uh, and yeah. This is really what shame. actually seems to happen. So this guy that did all this work in the Victorian period it's really hard to correlate some of it to modern times now because the damn stuff's been lost. You know, some guy dropped a bomb on the library and, you know, bombs and paper and parchment don't go together very well at all. Bastards. <laughs> hey, those people who destroy yeah. historical yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right? Um, and it, it's just... Yeah, but we started started looking and it started finding. But the interesting part is, is like for Deluca, we actually have um, court records and town council records showing he was, you know, because he he basically took the town council to court. Oh, did he really? Oh, yeah. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> this really sounds uh, interesting. Yeah. So basically, it was was either it was either Deluca or Morozo. I'm probably mixing up the two. But they, they ended up, um, they were employed by the town council to teach the, to teach the city militia. Oh, okay. okay. Interesting. So basi- really basically good. they yeah. were the, the fencing master for the, the city militia. And they took them to court to get a better rate because they were basically, because be, bas- he was basically saying that he couldn't earn a living out of what they were paying him. Oh, this sounds—is this about the the thing about Darty? Is that who this is? This sounds like that paper on Darty. Yeah, it might have been Darty. Okay. Um, yeah, and so Darty. Yeah, basically Darty took him because it was part of the, the hall that is apparently he was using, was partially owned by the council, the the town count, the the city council. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Um, so that was part of the, you know, you can use the the town, use this particular venue for your running or your classes. And then there was that court negotiation to get a better deal to pay for what it was costing him to um, teach the town militia. Cool. But yeah, but no, De, De Luca is one of those ones of, we've got references to him and we really only know... What's in Morozo? Right. So that's that what I was whole, thinking. That we don't know much that about whole the homage, at all. that whole homage that Morozo gives to his master. That's yeah. really all we've got because and to Guido Rangoni. This, <laughs> yeah, there was this one. There was this one line in that Victorian Italian guy, and it's like it just didn't pan out, and it was like such a shame. <laughs> yeah. You were able to find the location of Darty's apartment in Bologna, weren't you? Uh, Darty's apartments in Bologna? No, I never actually was able to find that. Um, okay. The... That might have been information that you had collected on the Stoccato website. Um, yeah, that was I'm trying to... linked to Wichtenauer. So that might have been... Yeah, because it, da- it was Darty we found out that... He had the school on um, Via Petrolata. Okay. 
Um, and it was Moroso. We actually knew where his cell was. So he had cool. his at the um, Abbey in Bologna. Well, one of these days we're going to have to do a, a map of uh, Marozzo's Bologna. <laughs> like yeah. show where all these places are. That'd be so cool. Yeah, and I realized, I, I just realized that I misspoke. It was DeLuca's De apartment, right? Was that the one? What is it? Did I say yeah. Darty? Was it DeLuca's apartment? I think it was DeLuca. Yeah, no, it yeah, it was DeLuca. Yeah, DeLuca, we just knew which, um, there was a, someone put up a reference on, they knew which parish he was. So oh, he okay, was cool, in okay. um, the parish of Santa Maria della Miratale. So, yeah, because we, we kind of cross-coordinated that. When yeah. we found, because Annabelle Bentivoglio um, founded his own sort of fencing school for the training of arms um, that he called the Casino in, in the city of Bologna. And what Stephen and I were kind of digging through other past information, and, and your information was, was kind of key on that. Um, we just started linking some of these things together, and we found that Dar or, uh, DeLuca's apartment was like a nine-minute walk away yeah. from the casino, and then yeah. <laughs> that just made perfect sense. I mean, if he was... Yeah, it, that's, especially, uh, that's, that's the really fascinating side of it, and it's like, I can't remember where I found this information. And it's and it's I'm kicking it now because it's like you find gold like that you write it down in something and then it's like you forget to Ugh. put the reference on where you found it and it's oh, like yeah. twenty years later yeah. now I'm going where the hell did I find out that information <sighs> it's like yeah gosh <laughs> we have to start note, noting where we're getting all our information from yeah and it's, I, and it's like know. it's one of those things if you 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 make these notes and you write it down somewhere and, and then you, you put it on you put it on your notes on a, a blog post and then it's like. Oh, where the hell did I find that twenty years later? I just can't. <laughs> I've, I've never been able to. Cor I've, I've never been able to some of this information again, and I'm kicking myself, going, "Am I right or am I wrong?" It's like oh, I found it once. Why can't I find it? Again? <laughs> you can do it again. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get back to fencing. All yeah. Right, so, um, one of the most useful things that I learned from your blog, which is kind of how I started in Bolognese swordsmanship, was the combination of push and pull cuts. Uh, now, I found that in the world of fencing, we don't see a lot of push cuts. Um, and uh, so I in your blog, you particularly highlight the push-pull combination that starts out the second verse of Manchelino's first assault, right? So it's the, you make the mandrito uh, on a cut and slip back into Guardia Sopra Braccio, and then you come out uh, with one reverso, which you interpret as being a pushed reverso, right? Mm-hmm. And then yep. you then have that pulled one that comes sweeps right across the leg. Yeah. So that it's really um, it's super fast, and uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, how you kind of came up with this idea of using push cuts and where else you see it sort of appear in the Bolognese canon. Well, that's actually my classical fencing background. Ah, okay, great. We're well, um, gonna get to that in a bit. Okay. So that's that's really where that came from was the because um, one of the things Maestro Linich did teach is he did teach some saber, um, sort of saber background with some of the cutting stuff, and we also had a second um, fencing master turn up um, with the SCA to do some teaching with us. 
Um, and he trained under, um, was it Pachenko? He was the Russian champ in the 80s and 90s. Okay. And then wow. the Australian Fencing Federation brought him out to actually set up their f- fencing, to, to set up their initial group of uh, getting a, f- a fencing master's program going in Australia. And he'd actually trained with this Russian fencing master, so he was a saber nut. Um, so, uh, Alex, oh god, I can't remember, but yeah, no, Maestro Alex uh, taught me a bunch of saber stuff, and one of the things that was really important to him was that uh, cuts made to the. And we, and we see this with the classical Italian as well. Cuts made to the outside of the opponent's body are pushed. And cuts made to the inside are a pull. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it makes sense from the perspective of... Uh, it's the... By doing a push cut, the sword is automatically out there on the recovery to cover against right. a repost from your opponent. Similarly, with the pull, with cutting to the inside of the opponent, the cut automatically comes to cover the opponent's sword. Right, because you're basically cutting into a porta de ferro or something like that, so it will come down and sit on top. Yeah, of so if you're cutting to the inside, it's that cut t- coming into Chingardia porta de ferro. Right, okay. Where it will close the inside line, whereas on the cuts to the outside, it's kind of like extending into Guardia Faccia where you then automatically can come back into something like a guardian a tester if you want to use the bolognese terms. And so and or this is using a push cut fifth off. Okay. Yeah, so with the with the push cut you can come back with either your tester or your Kodalunga Stretter defence in Bolognese. Uh, but whereas in classical Italian you'd be coming back yeah. under the parry of fifth or the parry of third to cover anything that your opponent can throw because their sword is on the outside of your sword, is the theory. Okay. And then I, I just throwing, was kind of impressed by the speed of it. It's that the speed of that combination is just so fast and so mechanically yeah. sound. And this is and that's really what it came down to is because when I started with um, Staccata in like two thousand and four, I was the lone Italian guy in a sea of English barbarians. <laughs> uh, they'd, they'd, Spoken they'd like a true Italian. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, and I'm not Italian at all. There's no Italian heritage at all, except for my um, fencing background. And it was really a case of they'd all drunk the silver Kool Aid, <laughs> and they oh, were basically Kool-Aid that was, <laughs> and, and still was, is. And it was basically, you know, all Italian is crap. I'm going to take you out with my downright blows and everything like that. <laughs> and that was the, the problem, is doing the crossbowing. If I was right. trying to throw two reversos and it would be like one, two, t- trying to do them as circular cuts or sort of throw the cut, pull up, throw the cut again, you were getting hit in the middle of it. Right. And then I kind of went, oh, what if I do it as the push? So I threw the first push, and then I automatically cut back through the leg, and I went, hey, wait a minute, that's that second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it goes so fast. <laughs> and it, it's basically like the push cut's cool because it, it combines the best parts of a thrust, which, of, which is speed, 
and then the cover of a cut because, I mean, thrusts technically cover you, but, you know, you kind yeah. of make your blade weak in the process, so it's pretty easy. But it was it was really it. hilarious yeah. because it's like I didn't need to put any power into it because the power yeah. of the push cut came from the passing step with the body. Right. And it's right. like they sort of go, mm. and it just collapsed through the guard of the guy I was fencing. And yeah. then because they were high, I go, oh, there's the leg. Bang! And I take the leg as I actually do the corrective step and get back out of guard. And they yeah. sort of start trying to chase me to find the point in their face, and they went onto it. And it's like, hey, this polonaise shit, it worked! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was when you little, start doing it, it's pretty pretty badass. Yeah, so. but it was, and it was little things like that because I had... I had to fence against whoever I could find because there was no one else doing it. And it was like, it was really, it was tested in the furnace of, uh, you know, what was ever thrown at me. And the the interpretation developed very, very quickly because of, if it didn't work, it was obviously (laughs) I didn't have my... Yeah, I was going to get hit. And I basically took the attitude that the manual was right, my interpretation was wrong. Yeah, that's how you. That that's a good way to learn. <laughs> and it was, yeah. and then, um, and then I, yeah, and it was, it was really there was one night at Staccato where I'd been trying to do this, yeah, trying to fence like they were trying to teach me to do it, and I just got jack of it one night and I went, you know what, I don't have any any English brute, I can't do it. I'm gonna fence. I'm I'm gonna see if I can make the bolognese work tonight. And I took apart one of the biggest guys in the club. Nice. nice. And, awesome. it, and it was at that point, you know, I'm an average height guy. I'm 5'9 in those weird imperial measurements, you know, 175 if you actually want to talk proper. 175 <laughs> centimetres if you actually want to talk a proper measurement system. Yeah, but you still drink pints, don't you? <laughs> Oh, yeah, you're going to get Stephen started here in a second. <laughs> <laughs> Take measurements. <laughs> um, yeah. He's a scientist, Stephen. Of course he's going to use both. Well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, but no, it, it was just a case of this one night because, you know, I'm 5'9", but at that time I was the shortest guy in Staccato. Right. At 5'9". Well, Everyone right. was like 6' plus. I mean, I'm six two, and I'm usually like middle of the road for my my club, so that he skews a bit tall. Yeah, but it, and it, it was does. just kind of funny. I went, yeah, I don't have this in an English brute. I can't make it work. I'm just going to play around with my bullet, and it's like poor, and it is poor. Big Dave just got because we had like four or five guys called Dave, so they all had their moniker, and he was Big <laughs> right. Dave. He was Big Dave, <laughs> right? <laughs> Big Dave, because he, because yeah, he was. Essentially, he was built like a brick shit house. He was a big, <laughs> solid man. That's um, very, 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 very strong, and he had an incredibly long reach. And I'm fencing away, and it's like, and then it's, it's basically I sort of see him lifting up, and he's gonna, he, he wanted to go up, and he wanted to cream ahead with this great big downright blow. And as I've seen it, I've just lunged out, and I've hit him in the face in Guardia Faccia on full extension and it was like bang and it's like you just hear him you just see the head you see his head snap back and he goes what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else goes oh 
And it was it was really at that point where I'm going, you know what? There really is something to this bolognese stuff. It really is. I mean, and it was, it, and yeah. I was, I was using uh, one of the Darkwood DA4 side sword blades at that point, so it had a fair bit of flex in it in the thrust. And all I heard later from um, Big Dave was like, "Thank God you hit me with your light rapier." <laughs> and, one of, and, and, and one of the, the one of the other instructors at Staccata, it says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, you and your light." And I handed it over, and he went, "Hey, wait a minute." This yeah. is a real freaking sword. Yeah. Because <laughs> what they hadn't realised is the the blade profile. It wasn't thin like a lot of their broadswords. It was the diamond section, so it okay, was yeah. the same sort of blade profile as the continental blades. And it's like they sort of went, "Hey, wait a minute! These are real blades." He's he's fencing with a real yeah, sword. Was... Oh shh! And then you could see their you could see the the stuff drain out of their faces when they realised I was fencing with an, a, a a white sword the same as theirs and throwing it around like it was weightless, because I was using the system as I understood it. And then that's when they went, ooh, ooh, okay, maybe we're being a little heavy-handed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. Yeah, let's move but on. Yeah, no, yeah. it's just. Uh, yeah, that that's that. That really was a turning point for me, and that's really where a lot of the interpretation success came from, was because I had to use it against whoever I was fencing. And you know, essentially, I had a lot of bestial men to fence against. <laughs> All right. Steve, well, we before we move on, yeah. do you mind, Richard? Do you mind just kind of for for people who might not be aware, just kind of describing what that push cut pull. Um, overall concept is and just kind of breaking it down in simple terms so people can kind of like get an idea okay um so really where we see this turn up is we see it in um there's essentially three different places where it turns up on a regular basis and that's when we've got um two mandrito one after the other a Fendente followed by Tremazzoni and um, two Reverso one after the other. And then what it really is, is on the first cut is it's thrown so that it lands and the slicing action for the cut is done with the completion of the pushing of the arm. That's also accompanied with the step in on the first cut. So normally your passing steps is done with like the first step is the step in and the second step is the recovery step as the the other foot comes around behind what's now the leading foot. So that first cut's done on that first passing step as you're coming forward. So the body weight's coming behind it and you're hitting with either the Reverso, Fendente, or Mandrito. And you've got to remember that Reverso and Mandriti in the Bolognese system are supposed to be cut on an ear-to-knee cutting line. So they're very close to vertical. So with that extension, because you're throwing it so... um, the, The example Stephen was talking about is you've basically ended up in your sword is sitting over in one of the brachia guards so it's either over your arm or under your arm and that first cut coming out 
is the reverser. So what you're actually doing is you're actually cutting out, collecting your opponent's sword, grazing down their sword as you push out and extend, hitting the right side of the head, so hitting to the right temple, and pushing into full extension out to Guardia Facia as you step out with your... Generally, it's a left passing step. From that point there, you actually f have finished on that first passing step out in Guardia Facia. From there, we actually can just drop the sword down in height to cut down through the opponent's leading leg as we make the corrective step and then that's going to drag the edge back through that leg on the corrective step. So that's our second reverso. So essentially it's on that first passing step as the weight's coming forward, we're pushing the sword into the cut. As we're correcting, we're pulling our shoulder away, dragging that cut through the dragging that blade through the leg as a, a slicing cut. So that's that pull cut. And gotcha. It's, so it's almost like the, the the first cut is kind of being extended with the extension of the arm, whereas the second cut is being pulled back into guard. Yes. Almost. And that's is exactly that, what it is. Okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah. No. That, then, that's um, that's really interesting. And then really what it is is with the the way to think about it is they just say you throw two reversi, and then the way it is is you actually go from your starting guard, to guardia facia as an intermediate point, pulling back into your finishing guard. So generally you would sort of start from your sopra el brachio, throw the reverse out of the head, cut the leg, finishing in Cotalunga Alta. But you've transitioned through Guardia Alta in the middle. Uh, Guardia Facia, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, a, a great combo. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting. Thanks for doing that, because I just I thought that you know it would be good for some people, especially we have a pretty wide base of an audience in terms of their experience. So, just trying to get a better visual for people. I appreciate that. Yeah, but yeah, and it also has the that that combo of however you do them. One of the things I love about it is it means that that first cut comes on really close to the opponent's sword. So it really cuts out mm. a lot of the um, counter-attacking ability that you have. So the, the first yeah. push cut really gives you a safe space to throw a second cut. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's good Mind stuff. you, that's not, that's not my favourite sequence out of the Bolognese material. Well, well, we'll get to your favourite in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we got a whole bunch of questions here. That's why I'm trying to move us we along. We do, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Sorry, Stephen. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, let's go. Um, actually, let's keep talk fe talking fencing, and then we'll loop back to the Sonoma stuff. Okay? Yep. All right. Great. So let's talk about um, a parry that you describe on your blog using an interpretation that comes from the embellishments. I probably remember the one I'm talking about where you, you know, basically where you're tapping the face of your buckler with your false edge to tap oh, the yeah. sword. Right? Right, so I always thought that was a pretty interesting parry, um, and so tell us about that. Uh, that's one of the ones where it's really, uh, it was trying to work out what was going on was really hard. Right. Um, 
and then the interpretation actually came from something I did without thinking it about. Um, and there's generally there's two ways you would actually do that embellishment is you would actually from Guardia Alter you would actually just turn the hand down and tap to the top of the right or the face of the buckler with your back right. edge. In this particular case, if it's the one I'm think you're talking about, it's the one where you start in a lower ward like Cotalunga Stretta, Porta de Ferro Stretta, and you're coming back with the tip pointed upwards. Is that the one you're talking about, Stephen? I, I just remember that you were you sourced the embellishments for an interpretation, which I thought was yeah. pretty interesting. And so and so, it's a super useful concept. I just yeah. was... But basically what it was, was the because you're starting out in Porto de Ferro Stretto, Cotalunga Stretto, what you're really doing is you're pulling the hand back, keeping the sword blade vertical, tapping the face of your buckler with the back edge. And as you're doing that, you're pulling the buckler back towards your chest in front of your left shoulder as well. Uh, okay. And it's like if you had the camera here, you could actually see me doing this with the hands. It's like, in that respect, I am a good <laughs> yeah. Italian. I can't talk about this stuff without moving the hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, basically, you're pulling it back, and that's where the embellish. So, what it's really doing is I, what I realized at that point was it's pulling back to a point where you transition through to Sotto il Brachio. Okay. which then sets up the rising cuts or the thrusts that come out of there. So instead of actually coming back to a point where it was sotto il brachio with the point behind you, it was a sotto il brachio where the point is really still vertical, maybe just in line with your left shoulder. So now, and immensely... Then, oh, sorry. And then what it really is is this that whole blade comes back like it's a sheet. Okay. Closing sheet. the line from your outside to your inside. So it okay. comes back like this, basically like it's just putting this defensive sheet right across the line of engagement in the movement. Interesting. Okay. Mm. I hadn't seen it that way. So in Manchelino's first assalto, he has you make the tap to the buckler face from Guardia di Testa. So it's presumably, I think, coming over the buckler and hitting the face. And then in the second Yeah, that's assalto, the one where you're rolling down into Delacorno. Yeah. And then the second one, he has you, I think, coming up from Cinghiata Porta di Ferro Stretta. And then, so that's yeah, the situation that you're talking about there. That's the, that's the one where yeah, I would do it that way, yeah. Okay. So it works from above and below. Uh, Okay, cool. And yeah, I thought it was interesting because it's the if you're facing a taller person, it's the easiest way I found to close distance because you can trap their sword against your buckler and then close in with a blow. Uh, mm. I just think it's a really interesting idea. Now, the embellishments are usually described as existing for aesthetic purposes. Are there other instances of the embellishments that you see where they're actually uh, fencing, you know, fencing stuff in there. Is there like a Da Vinci code in the embellishment somewhere? <laughs> Ooh, okay. Questions without warning. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Have I got 
I, I can postulate my wild theory. Yeah, yeah, you postulate. Postulate, man. That. All right. Yeah, yeah okay. Bring right. out those so, satyrs and nymphs. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I've, I've got one uh, that I've been playing around with where a lot of times when you're doing uh, like the mulinetto or you're doing something where you end up um, kissing the face of the buckler with the false edge of the sword and you end up going into Gordia de Testa, I, I have a feeling um, after playing with the sword and small buckler assolto uh, for a while now that the purpose of that is to actually make sure that you are going into Gordia de Testa properly Okay. Because if you end up hitting your, if you extend your buckler into your sword when you're going into Guardia de Testa, you'll cast your sword forward and you'll lose guard. However, if you cast your sword back into the buckler and it's the buckler that's moving into the sword, then it'll stay and it'll actually stick and it'll keep you in a proper Guardia de Testa. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I also look at the, so like Moraes, Manchelino's first assault the second part of the embellishment where you step in with the left foot and then you fall so to the buckler then extend into guardian tester yeah um i look at that as the it's actually a false edge true edge parry so that's actually hey wait a minute you know that mandrito reverso combination that turns up all the time right that's mm-hmm. a really good way of defeating it and we actually see that sort of false edge true edge combination parry used to defeat that sort of combination as well so it's like i think it's practicing that sort of concept as well yeah okay cool. and it's all the way the, through the two swords too i mean that's like his mo right with two swords yeah. but it's also the one of the things that the the embellishments i also see doing is, is it's actually just getting your feet and hands moving Right. So it's right. just a really good. Yeah. It's just a really good way of sort of warming up and taking the tension out as well. Helps for memorizing the thing to break it down into essentially to verses and choruses, to us. Yeah. Rather than just a continuous yeah, series of actions. In teaching you the the basics of the pedagog pedagogical approach too. I mean, um, you know, just recently I taught a class on them sensators. <laughs> but um, the whole the whole idea was going from wide play to narrow play, um, and two, three of the best plays that I could really focus on to highlight the transition between wide play and narrow play were Manciolino's transitions into his strata plays that he gives with the sword and small buckler. I mean, they're they're perfect. I mean, I was able to parse out the Anonymous advice and and look through all the different authors to see what sort of things that they were looking for for considerations of that transition between wide play and narrow play and found that Manchiolino basically hits every single thing. I mean, every I think every one of them uh, starts from Porta de Ferro Larga and it, it's kind of a, you know, that rising false edge up into their sword and then, you know, the progression ends up going from there. I think the, you know, the first one you end up turning the hand over, pushing a thrust and then from there, you're you're transitioning into your your strata play, but um, the interesting thing that I found with that in particular is you know, like the anonymo says that you should never enter into uh, mezzospada from wide play, right? As in, right. you should never find yourself getting into mezzospada if wide play is like your initial mode of of, uh, of approach, and um, there when I you know, from 
kind of a surface level looking at that play in particular, or even looking at the way that Manchiolino approaches all of his plays, you kind of get this this view that he is starting out with wide play. You're starting out in Cotolunga or in Gordia Alta and you're going down into Porta de Ferro Larga and then you're starting to go through this transition, but that the falso that comes in initially is what creates that threat that allows you to then transition into Mezzaspada. Um, so you're bringing your sword back online and you're not violating the anonymous advice. Um, but yeah, I, th I think that all three of those plays are, are, are super fascinating. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the I think the thing that is interesting to me is that it's harder to see in, in Morazzo's second book where he talks about the fact that you're making that transition into strata play to see where the finish is where Manchilino just gives you the entire progression, which I, th I think is incredibly valuable. That's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's one of the one of the reasons I, I really love Manchilino is he's a lot more um, clarity in some of his plays compared to Morozo. Morozo um, drank the the ac ac academic Kool-Aid where he uses 15 words when he could have used three. <laughs> He's trying to tell everybody how smart he is and just making that's himself... The nice... <laughs> well, yeah, and that's yeah, the that's nice thing. Mechalino tells us, that, I think it's in the start, the intro of book four, where he says, basically, it's like, you know, you, you, you've got to prove that you're an, actually an intelligent man, so you use all of these different terms, but they all just mean the same thing. Right. And, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. and it's yeah. like, I, I remember reading that when it, because he's talking about footwork at that point, and I, because he sort of says, you know, Mandrito and Reversi and Fendente, these are technical terms. We can't change them, but the footwork, it, you know, it's like we can say to pass, to step, to <laughs> to go right. straight, to, to move right, strongly, right. To, to, to pass strong. It all means the same thing. And it's like, oh, you bastards, why didn't you actually just write in a technical point of view? <laughs> They're, they were trying to sell books, man. They had to prove to people they were smart, just like you're saying. Yeah, but yeah, but it's just the, you know, Manchelino at least acknowledges that that's the, that, that that's an issue, whereas Morozo just uses fifteen words when he could have used three. <laughs> oh God, yes, and fifteen right. words chosen almost at random sometimes it seems. Yeah, and I think that's 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 my problem with Delagotchi is it's like he uses twenty seven words when he could use two. <laughs> I like the charts though. Oh yeah. man! All right, so you've been uh, you've been doing the well. So you have the f classic uh, fencing background, and then you've also been coming out here to do the Sonoma program for a couple of years, yeah. right? How has that affected your interpretations, or has it? It doesn't affect the interpretation, it affects the teaching. Or how you teach. Or how you teach. Yeah, so it actually really... Um, one of the reasons I do the Sonoma program is it's a chance for me to be a student for a while. Um, and it's a student in something that I at least find interesting and the real big advantage is this, the strong focus on fencing theory that the program runs okay. so it, it gives you that really solid background on Italian fencing theory and what I what I have really found is that Italian fencing theory it has been consistent for centuries right you can see how they were doing it and how they were applying it and even though, 
you know, we're down to foil and saber. And uh, essentially, foil and epée is the same weapon and saber. You've either okay. got something that's thrust orientated and something which is cut or thrust. How you actually use it and how you think about using a weapon tactically is very much a part of Italian fencing. And it has been for a very, very long time. So I see the same sorts of fencing theory approaches being used in Fiore, for God's sake, that you actually see in mm. classical fencing. How so? So, you know, so for me, really what it is, is it's just building and strengthening my knowledge of fencing theory is one of the big things I do for it. But it's also just a, a chance for me to switch off and be a student for a while. And um, my students all comment, I come back A, as a better fencer, and B, as a better teacher every time I do it. Oh, yeah? Okay. So, yeah. So, because it's like f four intense days of um, fencing training for eight hours a day, it kind of has an effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, well, and I guess it kind of like reminds you that you know, the importance that it may work in reality, but you have to make it work in theory for it to really be genuine Italian. Yeah. And it's it's also a case of the... I don't normally have people correcting me. Whereas right. actually having people correcting and improving and saying, hey, do you realise... And it's little things like, hey, do you realise your hands are tight and stuff like that and that you're moving in false times and things like that. So it's actually just really... It's really useful to get that feedback from right. other people. It is. It is fun to be a student, one hundred percent. Yeah, that is one of the biggest downside of being a teacher is that you're not a student anymore. Yeah, and I teach five different programs, so it's like, yeah, I spend oh, wow. a lot of time as teacher, not as student. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. So, what would you? What were, What are some things that you would classify as unifying concepts of Italian fencing? Things that you think have kind of transcended from Fiore or to the modern times? Uh, so basically we see that um, essentially what um, people describe as the fencing tactical wheel. So like your simple attack, which can lead to parry riposte, which can lead to compound attacks, which can lead to counterattacks. So that, yeah, gotcha. looping, yeah. that looping tactical one, and there's also the... There's also an extended one floating around that's got like six steps in the fencing tactical wheel. Yeah, by that Polish fencing coach, I think. Yeah. We'll see, yeah, we'll see if we can get a I copy up. Uh, we'll put a copy up so people know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so those sorts of concepts are there. And then really what we can actually see is... Um, the concept of um, yeah, one of the big things they talk about with fencing theory at the Sonoma program is there's really three different types of blade presentation. So you can make an invitation, so you leave an open line which forces your opponent to attack through that open line. Uh, you can have that against that point coming online on the attack you actually have to engage it to stop it hitting you right right 
okay so that's that second blade presentation is you engage your opponent's sword and then the interesting part is from that engagement point you actually have to disengage so essentially it comes down to if your blade is offline your opponent can make a direct attack that's the first blade presentation if you right. engaged your sword your opponent has to redirect their sword to hit you okay and right. if your opponent has engaged your and and basically the point in line engagement um, so yeah and the other one is, is if you if you have your point in line your opponent has to engage your sword okay or right, if your blades a, if your blades making the threat so basically you've got invitation threat and engagement those the, the three blade presentations Sounds a little like Joko Largo, Joko Stretto, and Mansa Spada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not quite, but yeah, but it's that, it is really that concept of the, you know, once you get the engagement, it's got to disengage, or if the point's in line, you have to engage it to attack them safely, um, or if they're attacking you, you've got to in, engage it to keep yourself safe first. Um, or if you want them to attack you in a certain spot, leave the line open so that you right. can then do whatever you want to do from it. Um, and then that sort of, that hierarchy of, okay, we can either parry or we can counterattack from right. an invitation. Setting up the, and it's that, that level of tactical response detail is be, has been very, very consistent with Italian fencing. Um, they don't explicitly yeah. talk about it that way, but it's certainly, there are lots of instances of exactly the same things happening. And we actually see this with some of the Bolognese manuals. It's like, you can be in this guard and they can do that, in which you can do that. Or you can, you know, as you know, one of my favourite phrases, you can ruin their hand with a miso mandrito. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, if they don't have the yeah, let's, let, to let, take, let's not stuff by hand. Let's not stuff around here. We're just going to ruin their hand with a miso mandrito. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, I think one of the most important things to learn for beginning fencers is they, they often want to try to have their sword in the middle um, so that it's kind of can protect all their lines in which it's actually protecting nothing. And so it's very yeah. useful, I think, to teach beginners, like, you know, protect one side so that you force them to go on the other side. That's much more valuable to you than having a sword that's literally doing nothing. Yeah, and it, it really it really helps um, students also understand about what's going on in the fight. Right. So they can sort of go, okay, well, they can't attack you here, so you don't need to worry. And, it's, and you can start getting into teaching them about decision trees and how to actually prune the branches on a decision right. tree. Right. And then they can find that time, which is what... They yeah. Do. Yep. Cool. All right. Um... All right, so l let's talk about uh, five foot nine, or in fake units, what was that again? One hundred and seventy-five <laughs> centimeters. One hundred and seventy-five in centimeters in, in fake international units. measurement systems. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, from that. Yeah, fake it's like the, the the, this imperial this imperial stuff. It's used by the U.S. and third world nations. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> 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 and it's two specific third world nations. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's great that we don't have to change. It's just our way of saying F you to the rest of the world. You're lucky we're here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the interesting part is, is if you actually look at all your scientific stuff, it's all in international units. Yeah, Thank you very much. Yeah. I, know, <laughs> so I know. I know. In human units, though, the other ones is, is pretty useful. But yeah. that aside, all right, so how does being on the shorter side change your game? How does how does it change your strategy? How would you teach a student to fence as a shorter fencer? Uh, I focus in on teaching them how to understand provocations. Okay. So really getting through that tech, that sort of using that blade presentation concept and the tactical world concept, so that they actually understand that you don't you don't want to be sitting there and waiting. As a short guy, sitting there and waiting for your opponent to do something is a <laughs> okay. good way to get hit. So specifically for sword and small buckler, because that's kind of our theme for the month here, how would yeah. you how would you recommend that for sword and small buckler fighting? Oh, the I one of the things I really hone in with um, a lot of students is teaching them that the thrust to the face is guaranteed to get a response from someone. Yeah, that does, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, using yeah. that thrust <laughs> to the face as an opening provocation to then just screw your opponent over and hit them wherever you want is really, really useful. Uh, it also means that you can actually start teaching them about um, working close to your opponent's sword. Right. Uh, one of the things I've sort of realized over the years is if you teach someone to pass and to thrust at the face they always do it in front of the yeah most people are right-handed so they will actually extend the thrust in front of their right shoulder which means all of inside of their right shoulder to the outside of their left shoulder they generally leave that line open right so they wonder why they get hit it's like right. but you told me to do that and it's like no 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 thrust and you start teaching them that the thrust doesn't have to come from in front of the right shoulder it can come right next to their blood the, the opponent's blade in front of your left shoulder yeah that's why and you join like, the sword and the sword helper together yeah and that's why you're sort of yeah. thrusting with the the buckler protecting the sword hand and stuff like that and then we start working through that and then they actually look at that and they go hey wait a minute they've I'm forcing them to parry now. And I said, yes. And when they parry, where are they going? They've gone from a closed line to another closed line. What line have they actually just opened? And that's the sort of concepts which they really, really love. And then that's, once we get them understanding that, that's where I love to throw in one of my favorite plays. Because. Which is? Uh, okay. So. From Porta de Ferrostretta, yep. you pass with the left foot thrusting to the face and you yep. do it really close mm -hmm. to their sword blade so that they actually sort of have to parry lifting up into something like Tester or just pushing to their outside into a Cotalunga position with their hand. And then what that does is, as because they generally lift up their hand, they've exposed their forearm. So because they're right. thrusted out, you're actually in Guardia Facci. You can just whip under their arms and cut up through the arms on a right foot traversing step with a rising oh, okay. reverso. Yeah, and that's Mancherino, right? One of his provocations. 
Yeah, it's one of his it's one of his provocations. He he has it in a couple of different spots. So basically, it's yeah. the thrust to the face on a left foot passing step, cutting up through the arms on a right foot traversing step, right. and then as your left foot comes behind in the corrective step, you smack him in the head with fendendo. Oh, okay. And I think in his assalto for the part of the first assalto, he has a part where he actually hits him in the top of the head with the false edge. It's yeah. a different example. Yeah. But yeah, but it's and it's but really really what it's doing is um one of the reasons I love slipping that one in for students is because they start to learn that wait a minute, this is a three dimensional fight, not a two dimensional fight. So it basically starts teaching them that it's not just in the high line on the inside and the outside. You've also got all of this rising stuff that comes in. And it's at that point where they sort of go, oh, so I can get in underneath as well. And then right. they now start looking at, uh, particularly for a short guy, they start actually going, oh, wait a minute, I can see low targets now. <laughs> and all of a sudden people are, people are wanting better hand protection. <laughs> Because <laughs> the false edge is just winding in underneath that buckler and hitting swords and stuff like that. So it's it's a really good teaching tool of just teaching that first provocation of closing out the line so they can't counterattack you, so they have to parry. And it's it's really, it's just, it's that first eye-opening instance they get of, wait a minute, I'm manipulating my opponent and forcing right. and taking the initiative from them so they've got to do what I tell them to. And it's a really it's a it's a really powerful lesson the first time a student actually um, sort of grocks their understanding that this is what they can do. This is how we can actually screw up these tall giants that are trying to hit me from miles away. Because they start to learn that actually it doesn't have to just be at the throat to be at the face. It can also oh if I do the same thing to their hands, they're going to react the same way. <laughs> and it gives you that little bit of yeah, it gives you that little bit of time to get in on the giants and actually just clobber them. <laughs> yeah. So I sorry. Uh, then you can really start to build on that. Um, I think too, because like with Manchiolino's sword and small buckler, uh, those same strata progressions that I was talking about earlier. I mean, that's basically his his follow up to go for a blade grab. So if instead of parrying high with that thrust to try to get up underneath it, if they end up um, parrying low with their hand low in the parry, then it allows you to um, oh, grab from their from sword top. blade. Yeah, you, you, right. you grab their sword blade and you can crank it down and then you can uh, just stab them in the belly. Yeah. So, Ouch. That's, there's a lot of the fun fun little progressions that you can start to build off of that same basic provocation. To yeah, really and the, the really interesting thing I found is the um, by getting them to understand all the progressions and how, and that sort of concept that Manchelino was teaching of these is, this is how you throw your attacks out of these individual guards. At that point, it means that they don't have to rely on knowing the strata material. The strata material becomes the, oh, if we get stuck in the cross, or at the point right. where we get stuck in the cross. And um, because it's so, what I found is in the past, it's like if you concentrate on the strata material a little bit, people get into this thing, oh, they've got to rush in and get there all the time without actually right. sort of 
you know, understanding that, no, 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 control the measure first. This is right. the stuff you actually right. use in an emergency. <laughs> That's why God gave us the montante thrust, is to deal with people like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, one of the key attacks from Mancellino and Morozzo in the Sword and Small Buckler is that the Mandrito and withdraw the foot combination, uh, which yep. is particularly challenging when you're on the smaller side because they're, you know, basically they're stepping in and cutting and then coming back to Guardia Sopra Braccio waiting for you to act in that tempo and they're out of reach at that moment if they are big and they are actually stepping mm -hmm. to their full stride like they're supposed to how does a shorter fencer get around that combination what using it or defeating it how would you defeat that if you're you know so let's say you're going against somebody who's six foot six that has a 10 foot lunge that comes in and throws that mandrito <laughs> just <laughs> right, right out of distance, so that you know it's like it scrapes the f would scrape the front of your mask if you don't do anything, and then they withdraw. You know they pull their right foot back into a nice guardia sopra braccio, um, as you basically begin your action. So how do you deal with yeah, that? On the one of the thing, one of the things I can do as a shorter guy is I actually do the defense on a gathering step. So okay, so you just step straight in. No, it's not so much step straighting in. Um, probably this is a probably a point where we need to talk about different terminology. When I'm talking yeah. about a gathering step, so if we're in a wide stance, mm -hmm. the gathering step is where I'm talking about the rear foot coming up to the front foot so that they're both together. So you're gathering in but not taking the full step. Yeah. So really okay. what that does is it's stealing distance because as you gather up, the body barely moves. But your right. ability to step forward has increased the length of a lunge. Right. Um, so by doing the defenses on the gathering distance. step, you've still got enough biomechanical strength to defend against anything. But it also means that you've actually crept into distance. So when they actually start creeping out, as you're coming out, you still have the ability to hit arms, heads, body. And uh, that okay. messes yeah. up. Um, tall guys because they expect oh I can throw this one and get out got it and then it really um, that that they're really not understanding that because you've gathered got up and the feet are together the fencer that's done that has 360 degrees of movement right right I see that yeah, that that totally makes sense it may, so and you, it's like uh, because you've gathered up I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily, so if I was in a right foot forward stance and I've gathered up, I'm now not stuck on having to pass left. I can actually, because the feet are together, I can go off to my right. You can lunge, you can pass, yeah, you've got all your options. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can sort of lunge, I can pass with the left foot, I can step forward with the left foot, I can step forward with the right foot, I can take an angled step with the right foot. And you it's like all that. of these options become available. And it's because I did that very simple thing of just intercepting that first action as I gathered up. It doesn't bring the body into, da into danger, but it's brought me into my measure to respond to what the big guy's doing. Got it. So then you can kind of take advantage of mistakes that they make 
as they're doing this because they will be exposing their body and if they're tall they'll be thinking I'm out of distance and I don't have to worry about a damn thing. It's kind of like that. Really what it is is I'm taking advantage of the fact that my legs are shorter and they move faster. Right, okay. No, that makes sense. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Okay, yeah. all right. It sounds very Italian. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really what it comes down to by transitioning through that narrow pace stance. I can go in whatever direction I want and it also has the advantage of that if they come at me again really fast, I also have the option of getting the body out. I can go backwards very quickly from there as well. So it's a, yeah, it's that, a really it totally makes it, sense. it's a it's a really safe intermediate place to be in because I can come forward quickly or I can get out quickly. Right. Um, because it's un, it's 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 essentially it's an unstable position. Because as what I teach my guys to do is you don't do that as you come into that narrow space. You don't straighten the legs in the intermediate, but you keep the the, the knees bent because you're right. now actually completely set up in an unstable position to go wherever you want to go. And it's like, let's use our shorter legs that move faster to to our advantage. And then a lot of tall guys get caught out by the, holy crap, you move quick. Right. right. And it's Again, not actually quick, it's just the efficiency. The montante. Yeah, so you're doing that. Yeah, and then you, yeah okay. That totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. All right. Um, so, in continuing our theme of sword and small buckler, um, so we'll talk about Manchelina sword and small buckler again. There's a lot of fencing from Guardia Alta, uh, which is an awesome guard that doesn't get used adequately. Their primary attacks are either a Mandrito that goes over the arm, that's Guardia Sopra Braccio, goes under the arms, Guardia Soto Braccio. There's Tremazonis to either Chinguiara or Porta di Ferro. There's the Fendente. I think there's rising reversos to the arm. Um, and there's, of course, the Montante Thrust, which is always cool, and the yep. Imbrocata from Guardia Alta, and finally, there's also a Mezza Mandrito to Guardia di Faccia, which I suppose is probably like to get to Mezza Spada. That's a lot of different attacks, especially for a new person. What is the one or two of those that you think you should really focus on mastering? You know, it's kind of a big question I just dropped on you there. Imbricata. Imbricata, huh? The Imbricata is the one that you... So how I actually pose this to my students is we use Guardia Ultra as an intimidating guard. Okay. And it really is. is if my sword's all the way up there, you're looking at it going... Oh, that's gonna come <laughs> down on top of my head. That's gonna hurt. <laughs> it's an, it's, and it, it really is. It's an intimidation, it is, it and is, it, yeah. it's great because I can use Guardia Alter, and uh, particularly when guys are trying to learn um, Guardia to test it properly. Right. And it's like they they they, they yeah. pull because you know, they usually drop their hand a little too low in Guardia to tester, and their head's still exposed. And I come yeah. up and I stand in front of them in Guardia to tester Guardia Alter, and I go. Are you really happy that this is going to stop my blow coming down from here? And all of a sudden you see the hands go, bang! And they're actually in the right gut. Right, do that one instead. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty instinctive it's, that way. Yeah. And Guardia guard Ultra is really, really good intimidation in that way. But it doesn't take people very long to quickly learn that all you've got to do is cut at that hand as it comes forward because it's exposed. So okay. you spend a lot of time teaching 
I find it's actually better to teach people that they come out in um, the imbricata. Okay. And Keep their hand off. back and point, come in with the point. Yeah, so basically you're just, from Guardia Alta, you're just turning the hand over and driving that thrust down at your opponent's face. The GI um, smiling right now. <laughs> and then what they actually learn very quickly is the it's a really safe thing coming out of there um, that then automatically rolls into Tremazoni and then you get all of those um, Tremazoni plays right that come out of uh, Guardia Alta and you get all of the that thrust coming in and it actually starts closing out the the instant responses so they're not cut that they're not able to cut at the hand so they've actually got to do something about it so it's just a really really useful introduction to guardia altar and then when they're starting to get it that's when you screw their brains with the montante thrust <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. so you like the stabby ex- ones <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, Richard, I as a as a shorter fencer, I've I've heard a lot from shorter fencers that they struggle with the imprecata. So, what is something that you think that they might be doing wrong that they could improve mechanically to sort of improve their use of the imprecata as a shorter fencer? Um, okay. What's actually happening with the imbricata with shorter fencers is they're actually getting too tight in the hand. So, because they're clenching they're not actually they don't have the ability to push the point forward so really um the way to think about it is with that imbricata coming out if it's nice and loose essentially you're actually pushing your thumb forward on the the grip which will bring the tip up in response so it's like almost like you end up in Guardia Facia with the hand turned up into first. So essentially we're looking for that full extension of the hand in first with the point in their face or maybe down into the collarbone and throat area is as low as you want to get. Too many people start throwing imbricatas at the chest and the belly which means that they've actually now left that hole and that's, this is why they're, they're finding it unsuccessful, because they're leaving a hole through where they can be counterattacked to the head. Whereas if we keep the point up in their face, uh, Manchelino was very specific this in his introduction. If you attack the face, they are more likely to respond um, to the attack than if you attack them low. They are more right. likely to defend themselves. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So kind of starting the thrust yeah. a little bit higher, more towards the face, um, and before turning it down into Porta de Ferro. Yeah. So that full okay. extension with the hand out in first, you're almost mm-hmm. hitting with the hand in first with the imbricata instead of actually... Uh, so essentially it's like I teach my guys to not pull into Porta de Ferro until they're actually recovering backwards. Yeah, until they're at full extension. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically they're at, actually, they're at that, full ex- they're at full extension. They've cleaned the clock of the opponent, then they're recovering back into Porta de Ferro Strata. Yeah, that's that's how I taught myself how to do it. Was you know stabbing trees and basically making sure that I had that full extension before pulling yeah. down. And that's, 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 that's really a lot of 
a lot of that is really, really hard to learn because coming down, people's natural tendency is to grip tight with their hand. And you've gotcha. got to sort of teach them that they need to push their thumb forward, relaxing their the rear fingers as they do it, and that keeps that point up nice and high. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, that was really that's, good. That's fine. Yeah, well, so I've been doing this for so goddamn long. There's so many things I do that I don't realize I do until someone actually asks me about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and I, I get this all the time. I, I try to sort of give people advice for how to do an impercata, but they're like, you know, you're six foot four. Of course, the impercata is going to work for you. It doesn't work for me that way. But I, I just wanted to see if we could, you know, kind of get some get some different perspective on there. That was that was really insightful. Mm. So, um, I think, uh, let's, yeah, let's go ahead and go on to the next question. Um, so let's talk strata plays. Um, which are your bread and butter and, uh, the mustachio play doesn't count. (laughs) 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 Um, is this where I be? I don't actually have bread and butter strata plays. Because I, I normally clock a lot of people with um, lager plays. <laughs> gotcha. um, for for me, a lot of the, a lot of the, for me, a lot of the strata plays is about understanding. So I take a lot of the concepts from the strata plays and actually apply them as my bread and butter instead. So that concept, particularly if it's like small buckler, from the mm. cross the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to shove the buckler in towards the opponent's sword hand so that I can then actually yeah. free my sword. Um, yeah. And yeah. then, and then re- really it's those sorts of concepts I'm taking it as, you know, or if we're crossed on the outside, can I get the buckler in there? No, okay, let's see if we can actually take the sword away or transition in. You know, can I get to... And for me, it's really I'm taking that concept of what we see in most of those strata plays is we've got to shut down the opponent's response first before we can do a lot of stuff um, because really what we actually see in a lot of those strata plays is the guy that moves first has the advantage yeah right big time big time yep so if if we can shut down the ability for the opponent to move first um, and just getting in there where we can actually hit um i also tend to have the rising reverso on a retreat as a a fairly standard response as well yeah Hmm. okay Um, particularly from the true edge to true edge cross makes sense Um, i think my personal favorite would be manchialino's 17th true edge to true edge where you take the sword you grab your own sword blade. So you're cross true edge to true edge. You cut a reverso. In the in cutting the reverso, so you're on their outside line, you grab your sword blade and basically wrench their sword out of the way and you slap them in the face or tug their beard. And I call it... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I call that one the Italian death because I feel like if you were to be able to pull that off on somebody in the street in Italy... They would never be able to show their face <laughs> in society ever again. Oh man, I like the one where but you just, yeah, where but you no, it's, it's really really funny. It's the um, 
you know, there's all of the the strata plays, and mostly what I remember out of the strata plays is the primary defenses just shove your buckler into their hand. And it's, right, yeah, just punch him with the edge of the buckler, or according to Fachi. No, it's not. It's not even you, punching him with the edge of the buckler. Is you just shoving the face of your buckler into their sword hand, and then from there yeah. you get the ability to do whatever you want. Um, right. and it's just it gives you that safe tempo um, and it's it was really distilling and actually understanding that that's what I'm seeing a lot of Manchalino's defences in the strata plays was it was really yeah. about making a safe tempo for yourself you know or just get the hell out and hit him in the hand <laughs> right yeah yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the interesting thing, too. Um, you know, I've actually, I've been doing a, a big deep dive on the Strata plays recently um, and uh, spending as much time as I have with them. Um, one of the interesting things that I found in trying to pair up other authors' advice along with um, what what Manchiolino gives, because, you know, Manchiolino's, he's my primary source, um, so... I'm going to take Manchiolino before I take Naranzo. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> great minds think alike. <laughs> but um, he, uh, you know, he's he's got, it, it does seem that, well, like with the anonymous advice, um, so this is this was something that I wrestled with a little bit, where it makes sense when the anonymous says that if you want to fight somebody that wants to fight in Larga, that you're going to press Strata and then strike them um, with a, a wide play action, right? So you're gonna you're gonna try to press them to Mezzaspada, and as they run away from you or if they retreat, then you're gonna hit them with a wide play action. Um, you know that that one's pretty pretty logical. But the one um, where I was really kind of playing with it is when your opponent is the one that's trying to press into Strata, and you go to wide play in order to strike them with Strata, and one of the things that I found most effective in doing a lot of the counters that Manchiolino gives is sometimes if you if your opponent is the first one to, to react and they're, they're really closing on you fast, it, just a changing step and then coming back in and pressing Strata as they've committed to Strata is enough to regain that leverage and, and to get that press uh, with the buckler to sort of, um, sort of reinitialize the engagement. Um, where they just lose all momentum. Um, found that really interesting. Yeah, that that uh, that little slip back with the front foot just messes up with measure and tempo like nothing else. Yeah, it just it totally it's, steals all their initiative. Yeah. But uh, yeah, a lot of it too is it actually changes the um, biomechanical linkages between the swords because the that, that little slip back just brings you it, it, it gives a little bit of a slide down the sword normally towards the tip of their sword um, so it gives you a little bit of a mechanical advantage in some cases which is what actually because what happens is a lot of people learn these strata plays and they learn that they've got to have this contact for that initial point and just that little slip changes the context so you get that very slight hesitation because it doesn't feel right to them and they don't realize right. they've hesitated it's yeah. a it, it, it's a it's a training thing that they don't realize they've actually trained 
Yeah, exactly. It's like they're they're looking for a specific measure, maybe a specific mm. crossing of the sword, and then when that gets denied from them, they just they you know they kind of panic. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Personally, I'm a big fan of any move where you rip the sword out of your opponent's hand. That is just the sweetest moment oh. ever. When you're holding their sword and they're just looking at you like, really? He just took that? That's fun. <laughs> that is fun. Uh, yeah, the problem is, is it happens so rarely that it's like you right. don't get to have that sweet little <laughs> see I am a fencing god moment <laughs> yeah, it's the whole the, the great feeling of giving them back their sword saying let's do this again <laughs> right uh, alright uh, so what are some things we as a community could do to better reflect the sources in our fencing oh I think we stumped them. Yeah, that's, this is, this is that, tough. clearly he thinks that we're so close to the sources that he just is is uh, at a loss for words. <laughs> it's either no, that or he thinks that it's... we have so much to improve. He's trying to prioritize. <laughs> <laughs> One of the yeah, if we're talking bolognese, um, one of the things that I've found over the last couple of decades is generally there's very few people with bolognese as their primary system hmm. well we're trying to fix so that. You know, yep. yeah yeah i've been trying to fix that for years and it's like it's um what generally happens is they'll start from a really nice guard and then they'll fall back into whatever else they normally do right right um so i think what it really just comes down to and it's one of it's where I seem to be having that success with my students is repetition, 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 repetition. Um, to, to better reflect the sources, we need to understand that the sources are systems, not a bag of tricks. And mm. A lot of people really go into this looking for that cool move. Whereas what we... What, we need more people doing the analysis and actually understanding this is how the system's put together and this is how the system's supposed to work. So looking at it from a system point of view versus from a, oh, this is a really cool player I can do to someone. Yeah, I think that's very true. We need to work on the foundations of our art. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then if you actually start getting people going, okay, if they throw... Yeah, and basically, this is how I can defend my inside, this is how I can defend my outside, this is the sort of footwork I can use. The guards eventually start to become irrelevant. Um, it really starts to get down to that point where you, you, you automatically start moving between your guards, doing everything you want to do. And if you get that systems approach right. to what we're actually looking at with these manuals people actually start to actually look like they're fencing as per the manuals it because it be a becomes common part theme. of yeah to, it people becomes that we part of what yeah. they yeah it becomes part of what they're doing as opposed to it's not just a bag of tricks right and yeah. Morozo, the whole manuals the system not the 
You know, it's not this. It's not a sword and buckling system. It's not a dagger system. It's not a partisan system. You know, the stuff that's in Spadone is reflected in the stuff that's in sword, sword and sword and small buckler. <laughs> right. Right. It's all kind of one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the the thing that the I think that's maybe one of the greatest commonalities that we see, and especially asking people who have been at this for a long time, is to to really look at this as uh, what are the when we say, or I'm sorry, when the sources give us a response or something like that, what are they really trying to explain? What are the principles that guide them to make that decision? And that's actually what you need to fence from and not just be mimicking the books. The books are just a, a portal to describing a philosophical and theoretical way of actually fighting. Yeah. And that's, that's the question I think a bunch of people need to really start asking when they're looking at the material is we kind of, with most of what's written, we get that this is what you do, but you've got to understand where is my opponent's sword? Because if right. you start asking that question, what is my where opponent is my doing? opponent's yeah. sword? It becomes the, oh, wait a minute, what line am I having to close? Where can they go from there? Where is their likely response going to come from? And then all of a sudden you start to see that, oh, wait a minute, they're telling me to do the, you know, move into Chingardia, Porto de Ferro to close my outside line, and then we're going to do something moving to my outside line because that's the only place that's available for my opponent to hit me. And it really starts to make that understanding of they're talking about opening and closing lines and invitations right. and provocations and you start to actually really go hey there's some real intelligence behind this system right and it's really thought out cool yeah you know these people weren't just gonna stupid. say that's they, why they, you know they did this for real with sharp swords and survived <laughs> right <laughs> yeah and that's, and that's honestly yeah, I mean, that whole discussion is exactly why Vigiani is a genius, right? I mean, is there point online? Yes or no. Is there point offline? Yeah. Yes or no. Right? I mean, that's yeah. the, the whole concept of, of Vigiani's breakdown of his guards is that your opponent's tactical considerations are limited whether or not their point is offline. So, you know, if their point is offline, they have to deliver a cut to come back to the center line. That's it. If their point is online, then they can deliver a thrust or a cut, and therefore, you have more to consider. You know, so mm. I mean, if you if you think about it in those simple terms, you can you can really start to suss out some of the um, deeper concepts of the Bolognese system without having to. Yeah, like, and I, I think that's where really I got kind of really about. really lucky because that's one of the things that uh, Maestro Lunich beat us beat into us really early was that understanding of for every action there's a, a, a reaction and that sort of, yeah, your fencing theory is, it's, it's, it's speed, timing, measure, and intelligence. Right. <laughs> and it was yeah. that, he was a big one for that fourth concept of intelligence, of actually understanding of if you are in a position, where is your opponent going? You know, that concept from like military intelligence or martial intelligence yeah. as opposed to actually thinking about what it is. So it's right. like, it was a yeah, really... I, 
that's that's uh, you know the anonymous advice on the guards too is is basically he's like you know they're infinite or an innumerable number of guards that somebody can hold um but understanding the i you know i'm, I'm definitely summarizing here but um you know basically understanding the nature of the guards then you'll be able to divine everything that they're going to do right now and that's that that was the thing that was really kind of um sort of seminal for me in looking at this and uh from a more okay what is the nature of the guards like you know right. that kind and of I thing i think guards are just a way of communicating a deeper truth true yeah yeah and, and it was it was it was for me early on realizing that the guards weren't just guards they were also hand positions you need hand like positions huh Oh yeah, Cardalunga Stretter is actually the hand turned out into second and third, or so third and second. Okay. Um, I mean, so that, that edge is turned best. outwards. Yeah. Uh, and Porta de Ferro is the hand in third. And that's really what the similarity is, is between all of those guards, because if the hand stays in that position, all of the plays work properly. If you actually deviate from those hand positions, the plays don't work properly. And it was just that little bit of understanding of, you know, getting those guards actually in the hand positions really starts to make sense of why Agrippa talked about there's actually only the four hand positions that we use in the in the 1550s. Ugh. So you, you, you come sort of full circle and actually going, okay, this is really what yeah. they're talking about. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. All right. All right, Stephen. Do you want to ask that question? Yes. Yes. Should we ask the big question now? Yes, we should. All right. This is the question of question, Richard. Are you ready? Yep. You've got to fight a duel. You are the challenged fighter, so the election of weapons comes to you. What weapon or combination of weapons do you choose and why? Oh, okay. And the fight's to the death. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Because I mean, it would be boring to talk about a fight to first blood. Yeah. This is the point where I'm going to disappoint you guys and say it would be rapier and dagger. Oh. For shame. <laughs> for shame. <laughs> shame. <laughs> Um, I don't see any only because it's the, the thing I've done <laughs> and it's, it's only because it's the thing I've done for the longest um, you know it's the thing I've done for nearly 25 years so yeah. it's yeah. the comfort yeah. zone um, whereas you know if it was going to be the second thing it would be sort of Believe it or not, it would be sword and dagger. Well, sword and dagger, sword and dagger. rapier, dagger, just the same thing, basically. Yeah, well, it's just a um, longer sword. But the, it, it, I would basically, I'd go with the. Generally, I'd the go with zone. the rapier because it's just that little bit of extra reach, and people don't understand how long my lunge is. Okay. All right. Nice. <laughs> okay. I mean, look, I, I, I totally I've, get it. I've got, I've got a mate that's. I've got a mate that's six foot five and my lunge is nearly as long as his. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's it, impressive. No, that's training. That's training and experience. Yeah. That's being taught how to lunge properly by a professional fencing master. 
and that's kind of how I ended up in Sonoma because the guys saw me lunch one day. One of the the guy that runs the program, uh, Maestro Sullins, saw me lunch and goes, "Where did he train? I recognise that lunch." <laughs> oh, no fooling, huh? Yeah, no fooling. And that that, that 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 that's where some of the conversation started. And it's like poor Maestro Hayes decided that, oh, he's gonna he's he's a Hema guy. He won't be able to lunch. Um, yeah, I'm gonna need to take a foot step. <laughs> I need to step back another foot. Because <laughs> I looked at me and went, "You're a bit close, aren't you?" Oh, I'll be fine. <laughs> Bang! And there's this massive bend in my side sword, and he goes, "Yeah, okay, you caught me out on the first one. I actually understood you knew how to lunge after that." <laughs> but yeah, no, it really is. It's just that's. If it was going to be life on the line and everything like that, that's where I'd go because it's the thing I've done the longest. Rapier so and dagger is a pretty good combination for a duel. Yeah, okay. yeah I, but I the, mean, the rapier, and, like rapier is, and dagger is... Yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing the longest. That's the thing that I'm most comfortable with and I react best. I and... will say a sword and dagger against any other combination does feel like cheating like it's, it's just, <laughs> if you if you fight somebody with sword and buckler and you have a sword and dagger it's it's just it it feels like you're in god mode and they're still like on level one it's it's ridiculous yeah i actually have this i actually have an analogy i usually give to my students and it's like the masters tell us that single sword is the queen of weapons and sword and small sword and buckler is the the king sword and dagger is the ace <laughs> yeah and then it's like and then they look at me and go so where's two swords and i said oh that's the joker in the deck it's either really good or really bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well i mean you know paladini recommends that you actually learn two swords before you do sword and dagger so he goes sword alone with the right hand sword alone with the left hand two swords and then you transition into doing the rapier and the dagger so interesting that he goes in that combination but yeah. Moranzo also teaches two swords before he teaches sword alone so or at least that's how he assembled his book so. yeah. presumably that's the order that you're supposed to do it in but yeah it may be. you don't know for yeah. sure yeah, the sort of loan material too, it's, it's kind of more like the these are the individual tricks which work best with this combination. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you view... Stuff. And when, when you actually look at it, it's a lot of the small buckle plays work with single sword as well. They do, yeah. And they speak to that. They speak to the fact that, you know, like a lot of the plays that they're going to teach are, are also viable with sword alone. Um, yeah. At least when it gets into like the strata plays, they say that. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's probably it then, huh? I don't think yeah. we got any more questions. Did we miss anything? I think we I think we got it. All right, Richard. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah, yeah that's it was fine. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, great to have you here. And uh, we appreciate. Yeah. It. yeah we, Hopefully, we appreciate you'll be back in NorCal. Yeah, or come out yeah. to the southeast and come see the Bolognese scene that's developed in the southeast of the United States. We got a big, big contingent now. Yeah, it's the when when I can afford to get there. I think is going to be the big 
issue at the moment. Yeah, it's a long flight, an expensive flight. <laughs> yeah, and in a post-COVID world, flights aren't cheap like they used to be. Oh, really? I right. didn't know they yeah. got more expensive, huh? No, the I used to be able to do return flights for about two thousand dollars, and it's really hard to get those prices now. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. two thousand Australian, right? Okay. Two thousand Australian, yeah. So the because the the volumes have gone down, uh, um, the, the cost price of the tickets have people. gone up to cover costs. Right. Right. That makes sense. You know, we've got the we've got the same thing where it used to be. You know, we could get flights around the country for one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars. It's now like three to four hundred dollars to get the main bulk routes between Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane. Well, at least we we're able to get you on here. This is the uh, I think you're about twelve thousand miles from the west coast, right? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is the fifteen thousand mile episode here. <laughs> yeah. I, I can title it that yeah that's perfect I like that <laughs> yeah I think it's close to a 12 hour time difference for the east coast yeah 17 from the west coast to you in the day which was interesting or maybe it was yeah. 16 because we had the time zones weird yeah it's actually it's actually when you look at it the other way it's only about um, 8 hours difference Mm. Okay. Oh, right. If you're going directly, right. Yeah. Right. So you know, theoretically, because it's just coming up on midday for me, which would mean it's probably about six in the afternoon for you guys. Yeah, six in the evening for me, and then Joshua's on yeah. the east coast, so he's yeah, it's uh, nine o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 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 kind of the way to think about it, but it's like hello from the future. <laughs> Right? <laughs> it's totally weird. It's Saturday where you are, which is just, that's the weirdest. I, I still can't wrap my head around that, but I'll, I will yeah. one day. Life goals. Life goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You're an American. You're living in the past as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I was so tempted to start asking you kangaroo fencing questions, but I decided to keep it serious. Maybe the next one. Oh, oh no no no! It's the emus got you got to watch out for the Australian army That's can't right. defeat them. The what? That's right. The the great emu war. Oh, the great emu war! I didn't know about that. Yeah oh, no it, yeah learn. there was a they basically were trying to cut back the emu population and the emus won. <laughs> <laughs> emus won, human zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got class, so I better get rolling on here, guys. Yeah. <coughs> Thank you very much. Richard, it was great talking to you. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, not a problem, guys. Talk to you Catch again. Later. Yeah, we'll do this again. And that concludes another episode of Learte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Richard again for coming on and sharing his wisdom with us. 15,000 miles of distance between the parties in this interview. What a miraculous thing the internet is. Stay tuned next week for an episode of Le Arte del Arme, which will feature a breakdown of all the different sidesword manufacturers and which ones Stephen and I think are best. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Richard Colonin, and we hope you enjoy further episodes of Le Arte del Arme. Don't forget to check out Maestro Wars Episode 1, 
as Maestro Wars Episode 2 will be coming up very shortly. We hope you enjoy, and, and of course, as always, stay saucy, my friends. <laughs>